Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows LIDE presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutner. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you for joining me today here on Revolution. I'm High C. And as we kick off the show each month, we have our roundtable discussion. And for that, I am joined by my fellow co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello, High C. And John Carousella. Good morning. And today, I thought that I would bring a topic based on a word, a concept that we often hear, we often hear used in many different ways. There's there's little sayings that people do very often, um, you know, like uh, karma's a bitch or uh, karma will get them in the end, what goes around comes around. Um, so it's this whole idea around karma. And I don't know that a lot of people have done much study, research to find what karma really is, especially in terms of where it comes from as a concept. Uh, But people seem to have many ideas as to what they think karma is. So I just thought it would be interesting to hear from you what you perceive karma to be uh, and, and how you define that concept and that word for yourself uh, and what you think when you when you hear it used in different ways. So, uh, why don't we just start by asking what you uh, what your personal definition is of karma? Well, hi. See, so you might laugh at this, but I don't usually use the word karma, nor do I think about it much. So, when you were offering this topic for a round table, it was. It was a kind of neat for me because I had to go inside. What came up first was what goes around comes around. And then I had to look under the layers of that and ask myself, that was from my head. Did I really believe that? And I don't know if I do or not. So what is it that you don't believe? For me, it's almost as if Well, where I put everything is an aspect of our soul decides to experience the earth or the joy of being alive, and that involves lessons or teachings or experiences of being on the earth plane. And then free will comes in, and we can determine the extent that we will experience the teachings and learnings based on our free will. And the free will choices can be either positive life force energy or negative life force energy. And if they're positive or negative, that may impact how we show up in a nonlinear way in another time on the earth. So that's kind of where I put it. The soul may choose if they made a, let's say if it made a a non-life supporting choice in one lifetime, it may choose to come back And revisit that again and make another choice or another choice or another choice. So that's what karma looks like to me. 
And when you say that you don't necessarily know whether you believe in karma or not, is that because you feel like karma is something that is outside of our free will in some way or supersedes our free will and therefore you don't believe that there is something that does that? Well, I think I'm probably just not a very deep person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we believe that movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> I find it interesting that the the thought of karma or the concept or the energy of karma rarely crosses my consciousness or my path. just doesn't seem to stick in me. Okay. Well, you know, I think that there's there might be some part of this that um, that actually makes sense uh, philosophically what Mildred Lynn is experiencing. Um, I'm one of my dear friends, Cherie, is studying Ayurveda, and so we've been talking a lot about um, Vedic philosophy, and so this topic of karma has come up on and off. Um, and she says that one of the ways that you uh, mitigate karma or can can just like eliminate karma is through meditation because you're just letting something go. And I'll talk a little bit more about how that relates in a minute. But I think Mildred Lynn, one of the things that you do, at least my my experience of you, is that you are very good at just letting things go. So karma, for me, karma is this thing that it really represents the parts of my personality, the parts of my soul experience that are trying to uh, have have time and exposure in this reality, in this lifetime, that are unconscious, they're below the radar. And so I need to have certain kinds of what stimulation, you know, circumstances, experiences. And some of it can, you know, some of it is a diversity. Some of it's like uh, needing to be shocked by circumstance in order to awaken to what's available, to what's really happening, to where I'm in resistance or where I, to what I'm unconscious about. Uh, and so it sort of, you know, it it lays low beneath the radar, beneath the consciousness, for as long as it needs to, uh, until I'm capable of recognizing it. And so that's why I think, you know, it's like, as Mildred Lynn talks about, if you make decisions that are not life-supporting, um, I think none of us would make those decisions if we knew better. Right. If we were more aware, we wouldn't make decisions that are not life supporting because they're not they're not as help they're not as they're not as nice they're not as fulfilling they don't feel as good. So I think karma is the part of us or is the result of the part of us that's unconscious and incapable of recognizing what's best for us. Um, and uh, so we operate on certain certain rules and decision-making, our free will. We exercise our free will in ways that don't actually serve us, and that's what creates negative karma. Now, there's also positive karma. You know, a lot of us have positive karma that we don't recognize. We don't realize that life 
is a gift. We don't realize that life can be full of play, that it can be easeful and so on and so forth. You know, we have this other idea of, of what life should be like. And, and at the same time, there's the occasional person who goes through life wondering why everybody's struggling so hard. And, you know, Mildred Lynn, I think you have, you have, uh, an, an aspect of that kind of personality where you just have a natural acceptance of the beauty and the lightness of being. And so I'm not surprised that negative karma, you know, burdensome karma doesn't really cross your path that often because it's not the place from which you're operating. Well, thank you, John. I think that I probably get my fair share of whatever. Mm -hmm. It's where you choose to put it. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking and Heisey had mentioned the topic of karma, I went into the energy and I came out at the hair line. And the hair line, there's a Barbara Ann Brennan. She's in Florida and she has written a book. She used to be a NASA scientist and then she got the energy work bug and she was inspired. And she, she was the first person with a science background that could explain energy work in the terms that I was used to it, a, a scientifically based model. Right. And she talked about a hair line, which is an energy vibration before, if, if I was going to give an analogy, it's an energy vibration that forms before a word would form. So if I said uh, creativity, well, it would be the energy vibration that would be coming together before creativity vibration was actually formed, if that makes any sense. And when I'm looking at karma, the concept of karma, that's where it resides. And if I was going to use an analogy for free will, that would be the word creativity. So I don't know if that makes sense or not. It makes sense to me. It, what, what, and it's, it's exactly that point that um, karma is the unconscious uh, expression of the self and the consequences of the unconscious expression of the self. So it makes perfect sense that it happens pre-verbal, that, it, that it's not conceptualized for, for people, right? Because it's, it is literally that which is unconscious. So it makes, makes sense to me. And I think, I think karma has this, this really powerful role in helping us to grow in the presence of what is not a uh, an effortless world, right? I mean, there's there's things that happen in this reality that are that require effort. That's one of the reasons we come into this reality in in theory, right? We get to exercise our free will in with constraints, this constraints of having a body and the constraints of requiring food and so on and so forth. And I think. Karma is a delightful tour guide to some of the um, less frequently selected stops on the on the journey. You know, like these are karma takes you to places that are not tourist attractions. <laughs> takes you into you know some other parts of the reality that we're experiencing. So you you seem to 
think that perhaps karma is much more shadow related and that there's a do you think there's always an inherently difficult aspect to karma no i i don't think so i think it's just that that um most of us when we re- are wrestling with our lives right uh we wrestle with the parts that are hard we don't typically wrestle with the parts that are easy you know <laughs> we don't wrestle with our luck with our good luck we we just assume well it's good luck you know we don't really think about it as being karmic so it remains perhaps potentially in the unconscious you know positive karma positive consequences of you know living a, a good and balanced life we just think well that's you know what happens when you live a good and balanced life but there's probably there's you no know, there's karmic resonance associated with that too and of course you know you get to pay that forward to your next life and so on and so forth well but, you know sometimes we're receiving good karma from a past life right but usually we just think well we got lucky <laughs> well right it, it does seem that people usually fall back on karma when there is something bad difficult or negative happening right but that's, As a that's way not to, the limit of it right well right you know but it seems to be this way of excusing it or um justifying something bad happening but in in some ways it's a way of of abdicating responsibility for what's happening if it's bad or difficult or negative because people will kind of try to say well I guess that's just my karma well I guess karma just caught up with that person um you know as if somehow there's there's less responsibility on the person's part there's a um a, a book by Trollokyabgan called Karma what it is what it isn't and why it matters and in it he actually you know highlights the fact that karma of course coming from a, a a buddhist perspective on it but to me that's going back to the roots of where it comes from and it's gotten quite misunderstood and perhaps misused and misconceptualized in the west um but ultimately karma means action which takes us to the idea of cause and effect and it's looking at karma being uh the responsibility of the individual rather than something divine or outside of us that somehow is governing what happens and that the cause and effect is often based on our own actions and the impulse that those actions came from and then what happens as a result of those actions whether in the immediate moment or some point down the road So do you do you feel that karma is individually determined or do you think that it's divinely determined um <clears throat> well for me I I mean I think it's I think it like like I said um you know it's 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 the unconscious self so I don't think it's divinely determined i think it is a constituent part of an individual's journey an individual's makeup uh that emerges or or 
uh, you know, circumstantially emerges, right? It, it, it shows up in life in sometimes in a surprising way because we're not conscious of it, but it's, it's baggage we're carrying along with us. So yeah, it's very definitely part of the self. It is not imposed from the divine in any way. But do you think that, because you keep saying it's from an unconscious part of ourselves, but do you think that karma can be generated from a conscious and aware state? Uh, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think if I was going to look at it in those term, I would, terms, I would look at it from the angle of intention. So where am I, where am I coming from? You can do something that's probably not the best, but you might not realize it's not the best in that you didn't have an intention to do that. So I, I couldn't see how that would stick to your energy or, you know, by extension, karma. So you said you could or couldn't see how it? No, I don't see how it, co- it could. I think the key, the pivot point is intention. So if you didn't have an intention to hurt someone, but you did, I don't see how that would, uh, how, you know, if we're using the terms of karma, how that would stick to you. But if you intended to hurt someone and you did, I could see how that would rob you of life force energy. It would not be beneficial to you and that may express itself in various ways well if you if you think of karma in terms of cause and effect even if you didn't have the intention to hurt someone the effect may be still that you did so there is still that karmic effect as a result of the cause of your action and i would say it would stick in the sense that you seeing the effect of that somehow hurting the person is part of your awakening process. It's it's there to allow you to learn why, how, and what happened from that action and how you can go about shifting yourself so that you don't repeat the same cause over and over again, which starts to get into this idea of the the repeating cycle of samsara and buddhism because really what you're trying to do is you're trying to learn and have that awareness come about so that you can start to step outside of that continually repeating cycle and and intention does play an important part because intention ultimately is how you're going to shift the karma and then shift the repetition of the samsaric cycle so it's it's equally important for it to stick and for you to recognize that the effect, even if unintentional, somehow created hurt for the person so that you can go back to look at what is it or where is it that in what I did created that effect so I can start to change that in myself rather than simply hoping the same thing in the future won't cause the same effect again. Yeah, I think that I I agree with what you're saying. I see it seems to me like in the in the grand cycle of awareness the there's a process of of opening to the consequences of our actions to a broader and broader set of um, a broader and broader field of view so we understand more and more the the intimate interconnectedness of all things 
as we awaken. And when we take an action, we may not have an intention to cause harm. Uh, but the fact that we chose a particular action that, that did inevitably cause harm or that, that did consequentially cause harm um, might be a function of our inability to see those consequences, to predict those consequences or to be aware of those consequences. And so there's a, there's a natural feedback loop in the universe that builds up energy, I guess you could say, builds up potential for us to become more aware of those less visible consequences. And that's what karma can be, might be seen as, is this, this buildup of potential energy that will enable us to see more clearly the consequences of our actions. Even when we operate from a place of uh, general goodwill and innocence. So it's just, a, it's an awakening process. It doesn't have to be painful. It's, you know, again, it's, it, 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 we get to decide what we make it mean when, when uh, a karmic event shows up in our lives and it causes us adversity, we can choose to see it as the universe taking a shot at us, or we can choose to see it as an opportunity to learn something we never would have learned any other way. So it doesn't have to be negative. Even when it's, even when it's uncomfortable, it doesn't have to be negative. And I think that's starting to touch on the the last question I wanted to ask. And and I think it's good that we have um, some slightly different perspectives on whether karma is important or is on our radar or whatever from each of us. Um, so do you do you think there is even a purpose to considering karma in ourselves in our lives, or is it just? a word or a concept that we toss around, but really there's, we shouldn't put a lot of emphasis or importance on worrying about it, wondering about it, or thinking about it. I have to say for me, hi C, this is going to be no surprise. I don't see myself using the word karma in my conversations, and I don't really see myself using it moving forward. So if I never heard the word karma again, it wouldn't mean that I have a concept or I understand something and I don't have a name to it. It seems it seems like it, it's almost, oh, it's like a little breeze. It just flows in and it flows out. And is that because you just don't really see any usefulness to it or purpose in thinking about it or that kind of thing? I think so, yeah. I would have to say yes. Okay. And for me, I think karma is uh, karma is one of the ways that I understand uh, and learn from adversity. You know, the concept of karma is, is useful for me in that it helps me understand what can be wrought from adversity. And uh, and I do believe, and this is something that I'm working on and I'm learning, that that buildup of potential energy that, that might illuminate something to me or that, you know, there's a, a kar- maybe a karmic debt that needs to be worked off. I think 
there are ways to work that karmic debt off without experiencing the discomfort. I think meditation, deep meditation, is a way of opening one's awareness to the consequences of one, one's actions that helps melt that build up that karmic load away. So it is a useful construct, a useful concept for me uh, as I investigate my own growth. Yeah. And I would say to what you just said is I don't think it's necessarily being able to not experience the discomfort. I think it's the willingness to experience the discomfort because it has brought about the awareness for something to need to shift or to change within us. And in meditation or whatever other process somebody might use, it means that we have reached a point of consciousness that says, I need to go into that discomfort in order to understand and make that shift rather than avoid the discomfort, which means I'm not going to change. And to think that, oh, well, now I can just move through this easily without any discomfort, or I need to wait until there is no discomfort before I know that it's right or time for me to, to go into or to work through this. Um, I also think karma is important to consider because ultimately it comes down to understanding our own personal responsibility for our own uh, growth, progress, life, uh, and, and what happens to us, what happens in our lives, what happens around us. Um, so if we see ourselves as the core or the center generator of the cause for whatever effects are going on in us, to us, and around us, then we can start to see. And, and to me, this is similar to what Mildred was saying in that it's about understanding and looking at where is our intention coming from. Doing something without intention can be just as harmful as doing something with bad intention. And so having that consciousness and awareness of the cause being generated from us is really, I think, what karma is all about because it's making us have to look at and take responsibility for whatever actions we take rather than just going through life in an unconscious way, acting without thinking about it, and then just hoping that if I say I'm sorry, it means it gives me license to do the same thing again and again and again, rather than to have to actually take responsibility for that and make a change. So, that will conclude the effect of my asking the question that caused this conversation on karma. <laughs> but its ramifications will echo throughout all eternity. Well, that is yes. true. That is true. <laughs> so I want to thank my co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. My pleasure. Who's not only hosts Healing Conversations, but also now has a new show that she is co-hosting called Two Owls Having a Hoot that you can hear in the archives as well as on the first Thursday of every month. And it shares lots of good energy, lots of good karma. That's right. <laughs> Even though you don't believe in that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also thank you to John Carousella who hosts Convergence. It is my pleasure as always, I see. And stay tuned because we have our regular segments and the rest of our 
revolutionary show this month coming up. And of course, as always, if you would like to receive a reading a little later in the show, you can get into the queue for that by either Skyping in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. So stay tuned. The revolution continues. When the universe connects us, I know this is karma. My bed, there's a shadow circle in my head. Where's love? Your love. In another life that I play this game, leaving me alone with an empty phrase. I fear the worst in me, but you know the best in me. Cause you see, when I'm honest with honesty, I will stumble through the darkness. Till we see the morning Is this time Can you hear me? My heart is singing Everything that I want to say I think about you every single day Is this time Come and dance Like they did before I lost you This is time my heart is singing Everything inside I want to say Every step I'm taking day by day When the universe connects I know that this karma You are listening to Revolution with host Taishi Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with C. Enjoy the show I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Food is alive. It is a being. It is a sacred being. Food is not just our vital need. It is the web of life. Vandana Shiva Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. I am Linda Wiley and this is Living Well with Linda. Welcome to the show, Linda, this fair July nice to once again have you here to to share with us and I know where you are in in Eugene you are getting ready for the big annual Eugene County Fair Oregon Country Oregon Oregon Country Fair yeah which is like it's quite the fair it's like 18,000 people or something that come for the weekend isn't it it is it's a big deal 
been going on for a long time. It's a tradition, you know. Well, and I think you know it. It plays into a lot of what you often talk about with community and uh, you know shared resources and all that kind of thing. So it's nice to have those things that can serve as a model, even for a weekend. Yes, it is. It's fun to put, you know, to have those ideas and. Yes, and to then put them into action. This this is what actually creates change. So, with this being July, we're kind of in the height of summer, the season of warmth and sun and frolic on the beach, for those by a beach. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what what thoughts do you have to share with us just about this time of year and and what the 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 warm summer sun is causing the bubble up in you at this time? <laughs> well, one thing that it, it wants to talk about is heat. But we will uh, talk about that further a little bit later. But first I want to say, here we are in July. It is summer in full bloom, the apex, with more to come. You know, as August approaches and September we get to enjoy some warm and Indian summer kind of days, but it holds promises of old untold beauty within the garden of life in the sweet summertime when the living is easy. It can conjure up a carefree time in life with barbecues, gatherings of families and friends, river trips, campouts, suntans, islands, mountains, amazing fresh food from the garden, good times in general. The spirit can seem to soar with the rising heat and take us into dream like fantasies of moonlit dinners and romance. This is summertime as well. We think of flowers coming into being and passing into the next, of children running free in the sprinklers, remembrances of our own childhood when the times were good. The art of living is all in the heart, translated into action via the mind and soul, heart first. To feel the joy of life and the magic and mystery it offers therein is what life is all about. To stand in this truth is freedom. Freedom now. Freedom now to enjoy life. So July is also about independence and freedom. Or rather, shall we say, the truth of interdependence within freedom. We're all connected and so it's also about personal freedom within community. There really is not an independent anything. When we take time to observe nature, it's clear that life needs life. It's a reciprocal thing. Nothing stands without the help of another. Living this truth will go far in changing the world we see around us. Observing nature can bring us to the knees in the depth of revelation it offers. That is why it is so important to observe and to be in nature. So indulge in the simple pleasures found in life during summer. Give yourself the warmth of the sun that radiates out to all. Feel your own body relax and bloom in the summertime as we grow and prosper in the abundance that surrounds us. If only we will look, however, and, and that abundance is found within family and friends, on river trips, backyard barbecues, sharing food and drink. Living well does not have to be a strict totalitarian kind of deal. Living well is about freedom to honor who each of us are and living well is enjoying life best we can as we can. Living well is not about ignoring the necessity of looking within and making changes, for living well is about changing within and without 
that they may reflect the heart of life once again. So with the the heat and and everyone out frolicking and everything, who has time for cooking? But I'm sure that you have a few recipes that will tempt the tummy and the taste buds and perhaps not even cause a sweat to whip up. I think you're right. (laughs) I think you're right. Um, So the couple of recipes that I have here, uh, recipes for summertime fun, as I I call it. So for a dairy-free treat, try raw coconut cream pie. The crust is almonds, walnuts, dates, processed in your Cuisinart, then pressed uh, into a pie plate, however thick you want it. Then you make the coconut cream, and it's a, a little can that you can get in a store, organic coconut cream. And you add some stevia or some organic sugar or honey or maple syrup, but not too much of the liquid things because it will make it too thin. Then you whip it up. And you put it in the refrigerator overnight and it thickens up. And it really is whipped creamish. I mean, it's never going to have the fluffy peaks of whipped cream. But it's going to give you that rich, creamy, thick kind of texture that we love. And so then on your pie crust, you can put any kind of fruit in season that you want. Uh, Strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, peaches like that delicious and then you put the um coconut cream on top of that and put some shredded coconut on top some slivered almonds maybe a little sprinkle of cinnamon voila and when you're going to your barbecue so that's a dessert you can take you can also uh, a corn salad or a salsa either it could be either way and it's just simply organic non-gmo local wonderful fresh corn Red peppers, green peppers, limes, red onions, garlic, cilantro, salt and pepper. You can even put in an avocado if you want. You know, cut the corn kernels off the cob and then mix all the ingredients in uh, a bowl and eat it or serve it on top of grilled marinated chicken. It's delicious. Then there's uh, egg plant roll-ups. And you... Take the eggplant, you slice it very thin in rounds, you spread the rounds out on a baking sheet, you put salt on them, both sides, and you let it sit for half an hour, hour or something like that, and all the liquid kind of drains out and the bitterness, it changes it to sweet, and uh, pat it dry. You take your sliced eggplant that's been salted, you brush it with olive oil and you grill it, and then when it's nice and soft and tender, you You take your chev, and with herbs in it is really nice, and you put a little roasted red pepper and a little thing, a little rolled up log of chev on the eggplant round, and then you roll it up. And it's delicious. You can sprinkle basil on top of it and chives, and it's a really yummy little treat. And then the last is a raw tomato soup. Use fresh avocados, because in the raw food world, using avocados is how we thicken many things. You use that as a base for uh, frostings and puddings, and so here we use it as a thickener for the soup. So we use fresh tomatoes, avocado, 
garlic, green onions, bragg, little basil, and you can have a tomato basil soup. Put it in the Cuisinart, blend it up. You have a delicious soup. So have fun. Take some of these uh, new ideas and play with them and bring them to your barbecue or serve them to your family at your own barbecue. And then once people have whipped these little things up and are eating them or perhaps afterwards and everyone decides now we need to cool off a bit and just sit down, relax, perhaps watch a movie or play a game. Uh, Is there something that you might recommend that people could both enjoy and maybe also glean some knowledge from at this time? I do. I have a perfect thing for that, of course. It is a film. It's a new film, and it shares my passion for permaculture because I feel permaculture is so deeply the way that we can regenerate the earth and ourselves. And it just offers so many deep perspectives on how to do that. So this is a film, and it's called Inhabit. It's a permaculture perspective. And it shows, uh, it, it starts with basic permaculture uh, concepts, and it shows how they are applicable in all set, settings, a rural, urban, suburban, full-on city. It starts with the premise on what permaculture is based on, which is an ethical principle, an ethical, three ethical ideas, and it's care of the earth, care of the people, and fair share for all. So with that in mind, that's a beautiful thing, and then they take you through these different settings showing how permaculture can accommodate all things. So it's an enjoyable thing to share and consider and talk about on your summer day while you're enjoying life, about how you can heal the earth as well. And that's called Inhabit. Is that something that is available in theaters or online? Yes, it's it's an online. I, I purchased it myself online. I don't think it's a Netflix kind of thing. You might be able to find a trailer. Uh, most probably you can find a trailer on it on YouTube if you wanted to check it out. But I highly recommend, you know, if you feel like collecting some educational, informational kinds of things, uh, this would be a good one to add to your collection. All right. Excellent. Well, plenty to keep people busy (laughs) that you have offered (laughs) us here. Both both, cooking and movies. Both in our heads and with our hands. Um, so, and then through the heart by yeah. sharing the food and sharing the bounty and being with family, and always got to get the heart in there. Exactly, and and you know what better time to think about that than the height of summer when everything is illuminated and radiant the way it can be when we are sharing from our head, our heart, and our hands all at once. Absolutely. That's that's really about the truth of life, and and summer is really an easy time for that because the body is comfortable, it's warm, we don't have a lot of clothes, there's not a lot of boundaries, it's it's just a much more open kind of time, so enjoy that. Well, and we, we appreciate you being radiant and sharing with us from both your head and your heart. Thank you, thank you. 
So thank you for being here again this month, and we will look forward to hearing from you again next month, as well as perhaps hearing from people on the Facebook page if they decide to try out one of the recipes. They might come and share how it turned out for them and what they thought. Indeed. So Thank you. Yes. Well, enjoy the fair. I am, and you enjoy the rest of your lovely summertime adventures. Thank you. And we will look forward to hearing from you in August. Thank you, Heisey. And remember, it's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at linda at prescia.com. Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with Heisey. Enjoy the show. My guest today is author and speaker Richard Reedy. Richard earned a Master of Divinity degree in 1979 and is the founder of two temples in Northern California dedicated to researching, restoring, and enacting the authentic rituals of ancient Egypt. He is a sought-after speaker on the Egyptian religious tradition and its legacy for modern times. Richard Reedy is the author of Eternal Egypt, Ancient Rituals for the Modern World, the first comprehensive collection of important temple rituals seven key rites from official temple records and ancient esoteric texts for personal or group use. These ritual texts reveal the deeply spiritual understanding of humanity's relationship to divinity that characterized the ancient Egyptian sense of the sacred. Eternal Egypt is a practical intermediate level text for those wishing to authentically worship the great deities of ancient Egypt and to tap into the great spiritual heritage that sustained Egyptian culture for over 3,000 years. You can find Eternal Egypt at online retailers such as Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and you can contact Richard through his Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash eternal Egypt 
or you can contact him directly by email at rjreedy, that's R-J-R-E-I-D-Y, at hotmail.com. So please help me in welcoming to the show today, author and speaker, Richard Reedy. So thank you, Richard, for joining us today and being willing to share your knowledge and your experience, especially in terms of ancient Egypt and the Kemetic spiritual tradition with our listeners. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. The first thing I'd like to start with is maybe to just give people a little bit of a background regarding your spiritual evolution and what, where you came from and what brought you to the uh, Kemetic path that you currently are now following. That's a good question to begin with. Uh, I was raised as an Orthodox Christian in the uh, Eastern Church, and I had a very happy uh, experience there. I was so comfortable in that uh, Christian denomination that I eventually went to theology school and studied full-time for three years in order to, this was after college, in order to earn my Master of Divinity. Uh, Instead of being ordained to the Orthodox priesthood, I worked for my denomination for quite a few years in New York, and uh, as a consequence, I represented my denomination at the National Council of Churches, where I had an opportunity to meet with members of many different Christian faiths. By and large, these were uh, mainstream Christian denominations, and I found that with the variety of Christian sects, that there was there was a great deal to admire, especially in terms of social outreach, as well as with uh, real fervor in spreading the Christian gospel, <clears throat> but not in a coercive way. However, as time went on, after I had been in New York for over 10 years and working in the church, I decided uh, that Christian theology was less and less credible for myself. Uh, I had many problems with it, and as a result of that, I determined that I needed to stop my work in the National Council and in my denominational headquarters and seek Another spiritual path, spirituality and religion have always been extremely important for me. It was important in the lives of my mom and dad. And um, as now a non-Christian, I was searching for an alternative spirituality. And I wanted to explore religions of the earth. And ultimately, with a great deal of reading, I have a tendency to be rather academic in my approach to things. Uh, As a result of my reading and study and discussion, I was drawn more and more to religions of the earth and ultimately to uh, the ancient religion of Egypt. It seemed to me to be a well-nuanced theology and a beautiful conception of the relationship between the gods and humans. So, in a nutshell, I'm a hardline polytheist. And as that, my particular path is with the ancient gods of Egypt. I don't mean to say that other spiritual paths, either ancient or modern, are not good, useful, worthy of a blessing. Uh, Quite on the contrary, 
I find that pagans and neo-pagans of many stripes are all in agreement that one path is not better or solely the one leading to the divine. But all these paths offer a richness, a very rich tapestry of beliefs, expressions, rituals, and all of them are worthy of being followed by those who feel so called. And what you follow or or the way that you practice now is, in a general sense at least, considered more of a reconstructionist approach. Is that correct? Yes. Reconstructionism is an attempt to research and revive the rituals of the ancient culture of Egypt. And fortunately, there are many, many ritual texts preserved on papyrus and on the walls of the remaining temples. And now that we can translate the hieroglyphs, uh, and with over 190 years of Egyptologists working on deciphering that language, we have a rich storehouse of texts that give us great insight into the beliefs and practices of the ancient Egyptians. And I found in my own practice that uh, those rituals, those prayers, those incantations are very powerful and very effective. I'm very practical, I'm a pragmatist, and uh, I quickly lose interest in things that don't work. However, I have found that the rituals and the magic of ancient Egypt are extremely powerful, very effective, and uh, good for building up a better world and uh, helping individuals. And for people that sometimes think that a, a reconstructionist approach to a spiritual path means we do it exactly the way they did it thousands of years ago. If you're not doing it that way, you're doing it wrong. And we don't try to embellish, change, add on to, or do it in any way different than they do or that they did. Uh, what would you say to that? Do, do you adhere that strictly to it, like you're only going to do it the way it was done thousands of years ago, or that practical and pragmatic side do you allow for that to be more of a guideline, but you allow for some uh, alteration or, or creation of things? Our religion, Kemetic Reconstructionism, is a living religion. And that means although we use uh, the ancient patterns of worship, uh, the ancient style of worship, the ancient words to guide us, we are not bound to limit ourselves to only those particular words or actions. It's a modern-day religion just as much as it was an ancient religion. Uh, unlike the religions of the book, that is Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, those three religions are compelled not to change one single iota of the given texts of their belief system. However, as a comedic reconstructionist, I am able to take, or we are able to take those texts and put them in a modern context following the ancient pattern. And also, since so many temples to the gods were destroyed and we have very little left of them, we can nevertheless 
craft and create rituals based on a paradigm. As a matter of fact, the daily rituals of Egypt throughout all the temples were based on the paradigm in the great temple of Amun in Karnak. And so that prototype, which served the priests of other gods and goddesses throughout the land, that particular prototype can serve us today in, in creating beautiful rituals for those gods and goddesses for whom we do not have the artifacts and information as to the exact words that were used in their worship. But we do know that the Temple of Amun created the prototype that was used, and we see that in the temples that are remaining in ancient Egypt, that this, in fact, was the prototype. So we use that today, crafting rituals for other deities. So it's interesting that you came from a more, one, I think, very well-informed theological background, as well as you tend to have a slightly more academic approach the way you described that you like to do things. And I'm wondering if you've found over time, whether you've seen it in the past or maybe you've seen something new starting to emerge, do you find that there is any sort of acknowledgement of a modern-day tendency to revive or revisit ancient religions and spiritual traditions? Or do you find that it still just is really kind of set aside as superstition and there's really no acknowledgement or even any study of that in today's world? Actually, I've been in contact with a uh, doctoral candidate in Great Britain who now fortunately has, has been awarded his Ph.D., and whose subject uh, was precisely the reemergence of ancient Egyptian religion in the modern world. So he and I have had a number of very di interesting discussions and email exchanges over these last few years. And I feel that academia is becoming more conscious of and respectful of modern practitioners of ancient religions. They find it, of course, interesting as an academic, but I think also there's an underlying respect for a spiritual path. Now, this is not, of course, universal. I'm not referring to all or even the majority of Egyptologists, but I think that there is a growing sense that it, the religions are being revived and that people are serious about it. Uh, you mentioned uh, that I take a particularly academic approach, and that's that's true. That's for me. But as a matter of fact, most people coming to religion or practicing any religion, they don't have the time necessarily or the inclination to be highly academic about something. And that, I think, is a clue from the gods. That is a clue that it's good, proper, fine, and worthy of a blessing to approach deity in whatever way feels right and good for you. I think the deities uh, are very, very interested in our mutual relationship. And I'll talk about that more in a bit, about the mutual relationship between gods and goddesses and ourselves as humans. Most persons who practice any religion will be drawn to one or another deity, 
god or a goddess or one particular form of practice and that's good it's not a question of well you 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 know somebody else is going to tell you which deity is your deity or which deity to venerate or honor rather it, the god is in a sense flirting with you it's a it's a love relationship the god is attracting you perhaps it's because you you like the picture of the god or goddess you like the myths regarding the god or the goddess these are all valid ways of a deity attracting us and our responding and in my own situation i was attracted to a particular egyptian deity and that deity provided me with a portal in which to enter and become more knowledgeable with the ancient religion and i think that this is not unusual perhaps a person is who is drawn to the goddess aset or isis or drawn to um, jehudi the god thoth uh, or some non-egyptian god to zeus or hermes these are all good things and a valid way to be called to a greater and greater participation with deity and part of your contribution to the uh, continuation of the comedic tradition and also i think something that is very useful for people who do start to feel called either by a particular egyptian deity or to an egyptian path is your book eternal egypt ancient rituals for the modern world and so i'm wondering if first of all you could just tell us what the genesis of that book was where it kind of came from and what prompted you to create that well over 15 years ago a group of persons in san francisco gathered together with me to explore ancient magic ancient religious practices and we all quickly were drawn to the gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt and uh, within a short time and, and these are people from various spiritual traditions wicca voodoo and various other forms of spiritual tradition and uh, we we all came at the right time i think uh, to form a temple for the practice of the ancient religion for study of the ancient religion and uh, we've been together now for a solid 14 years many of the same members participate in our monthly rituals others have moved away quite some distance and so they're no longer able to participate in our monthly rituals due to distance by and large this temple has stayed together because of the appreciation that each person has in reviving and restoring this ancient religion so it was very fortuitous that we all came together and this has been the result the reason i put together and crafted my book eternal egypt was so that if anything were to happen to the temple as people move as people uh change course in their lives anyone leaves the temple for whatever reason or, or death that these things would not come to an end but rather we found that these rituals 
were so meaningful and so rich that I wanted to share them with as wide an audience as possible so that others who don't have the time to read 50 books on Egyptology or to search through the academic journals, rather are provided with the means where they can study these these texts and these rituals with commentary, because I just don't present rituals. There's plenty of commentary there so that people can be informed about what they're going to read in a ritual and how to conduct the ritual. So by getting it out there, and, and I'm surprised at, the, at, the, at how well-received it's been, how people have written me, and for those who finally found my email address or uh, you know got a hold of me, the wonderful questions they have. And uh, so it keeps me on my toes to be able to answer them. And and uh, over the years, I've really built up kind of a nice, wonderful series of friendships with people all over the country and a few from abroad. So it's it's been very rewarding for me. And from the, the temple that you initially formed in San Francisco have also now come sister temples that have grown in other locations as well. Is, is that correct? Yes. Across the United States, there's a number of groups. You know, we're, we're, we're pretty small, but there's a number of groups who gather every month for ritual, and these groups seem to retain their membership. And I think one of the reasons why is our rituals are closed to the public, and so entry into the temple requires dedication. There's a testing period. There are assignments. There are a number of books to be read. And there needs to be a period of time where we get to see whether the initial enthusiasm or interest in our temple is going to be beneficial to the other members of the temple and also to that individual, whether they can commit to a monthly meeting uh, for ritual, whether they can actively participate in and contribute to the temple. That way we're able to make certain that for the individual that this is a good fit. And uh, we, do, we do have um, several instances where we've done public rituals, and that's at Pantheacon, which is held every presidential weekend in February in San Jose. And several thousand, well over 2,000 pagans and neo-pagans come together for a wonderful series of meetings and uh, presentations and workshops and panel discussions and rituals. And for the past two years, we have invited people to witness uh, one of our rituals in our hospitality suite. And so the room gets very crowded, but uh, it seems to be extremely well received and uh, participation is very high. So for that, I'm very gratified. And I think it's important, you know, regardless of whether it's a million people that are doing this across the country or whether it's a smaller number of people that are doing this, the fact that there are people doing it regularly means it continues to be a living and breathing uh, religion or spiritual path. Not only does the people doing it continue to make it a living and breathing and ongoing spiritual practice and tradition, 
but also your book, which is not written as just a condensed academic approach or, or information for people, but it's actually rituals that are meant to be used and performed by people today. And so can you give us a bit of a sense of some of the types of rituals that are in your book that people would find in there that people could use if they were feeling drawn to or if they're already in the comedic path and and how those can be utilized and serve them in that? That's a great question. The book Eternal Egypt has quite a few rituals in it. Uh, one, the morning ritual in the temple of Amun-Ra at Karnak, taken from the walls. The hieroglyphs on the walls guide a person through the ritual and provide a pictorial and a written guide as to what was done for daily ritual. We also have the nighttime ritual for the mystical union of Ra with Osir, that is, with Osiris. We have two rituals for the blessed dead. One ritual is performed annually. It's called the Beautiful Feast of the Western Valley. And uh, that ritual, we're very fortunate to have the text for that particular ritual and how wonderful it must have been when people during this time, which is generally around the month of May, went to the cemeteries and they had a festive meal with their blessed ancestors at the tombs of the ancestors. And uh, another ritual is a ritual that can be performed more often and that is for, uh, again, for the blessed dead, for, for your family members, for your ancestors, for those that are part of your, your greater spiritual family who have passed away. Death does not conquer love. Love conquers death. That means that people who loved each other in life continue to love each other even if one person is departed. That's a very important concept in ancient Egypt. This idea that um, that once a person dies, they're gone, you know, you have nothing to do with them anymore, just memories, that's not at all a, a comedic approach. That's not an Egyptian approach at all. Love conquers death. And so these rituals show that. It's a mutual relationship. We make offerings for our blessed dead, and they help us in this life. So it's not uncommon for a comedic to have uh, an ancestral altar as well as uh, an altar to their particularly favorite goddess or god. In addition to that, we have three apotropaic or protection rituals aimed at negative forces. And this was done uh, by priests in the temples on a daily basis to protect Pharaoh, to protect Egypt, to protect and promote Ma'at from harmful, wicked influences. Not everyone may be comfortable with that particular type of ritual or magic, but it definitely is worthy of considering and thinking about. And so I provide those rituals. In addition, we have rituals for uh, the goddess Sekhmet, the great one of healing, and a ritual for Set or Setek, 
who was uh, chosen by Ra as a defender of Ra. And we have a ritual for Jehudi, or Thoth, as Lord of Wisdom, Lord of Kindliness. I think that's one of my favorite epithets for Jehudi, Thoth, Lord of Kindliness. And these rituals, those, those last three rituals, to Sekhmet and to Setek and to Jehudi, are based on a prototype. And in addition to that, our temples, of course, have many, many other general rituals. And if anyone is interested in speaking with me about a ritual for a particular god or goddess, they can contact me at my email address, which is the initial R, the initial J, and then my name, Reedy. So rjreedy at hotmail.com. And I'm happy to uh, try to accommodate you if you have an interest in a ritual for a particular god or goddess in the Egyptian pantheon. And I think something that ties into that importance of the continuation of the tradition, that it continues to be a living and breathing tradition rather than an old or a dead tradition that was simply practiced by people in ancient times, is also something that you touched on when you were speaking of, uh, say, the Feast for the Western Valley. I think a lot of people, and even Egyptologists, tend to think of ancient Egypt as basically people who were obsessed with death. Oh, how mistaken they are. And when you say that death does not conquer love, but instead love surpasses death, there's actually many, many indications that they were much more focused on life and the continuation of life even beyond death, rather than being obsessed with death. Absolutely. And, you know, one example of that, of course, and I think some of this comes through a, a modern-day filter that Egyptologists tend to fall into. And when I say modern-day, I'm including the past couple hundred years, not just today. You know, but even, say, the, the title that most people are probably familiar with, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is not really a proper translation of the title of that book, nor the intention of what is in that book. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the religion of ancient Egypt was a religion celebrating life, celebrating the living. And uh, due to the accident of climate, a very dry climate, that preserved the tombs and the writings and drawings in the tombs, as well as copies of the so-called Book of the Dead, which really is the book of coming forth into the day. That's the actual Egyptian title for that book. The Egyptians were all about life and enjoyment and celebration. They also realized that at the end of this life, there was the next life, an afterlife, which they had the insight into understanding that the afterlife was an important part, and there was a relationship with this life. But they certainly enjoyed life. It was very much about enjoyment. It was not about self-denial. It was not a religion that was trying to escape physicality. It was not a religion that was trying to force asceticism on people. Fasting and penance and penitential practices were absolutely alien to the ancient Egyptian mentality. And as a consequence, it really is a religion of life and joy and celebration. 
So the subtitle of your book is Ancient Rituals for the Modern World. And what would you say to someone who was wondering what value there is or what rituals from what ancient people did back three, four, five thousand years ago, what value those hold for someone today? And I know that most of what we have comes from temples and tombs versus coming from, we don't necessarily know a lot about what the everyday person's spiritual practice may have been. And what value is there, A, in the practicing of rituals from an ancient time, and what, what do they hold for us in today's world and for ourselves in our modern world? And B, I think that what your book really serves is it's offering the everyday person a way to bring that into their everyday life and spiritual practice versus it having to be something that since there are no temples and no priests to go to, well, it can't even be done anymore. I think that the ancient rituals provide a very rich resource for private practice, um, something that I, I feel is really important to get across is that it's not an either-or situation. Either one does the entire ritual or one does nothing from the ritual. I think as a modern person reading these ancient texts, the modern person may feel particularly moved or called by certain parts of the ritual, certain elements in the ritual. My feeling is adopt that part. Use that particular section that speaks to you. In my book, I try to add a lot of commentary, a lot of explanation, so that these images from thousands of years ago click with a modern mindset, make sense to a modern mind. The ancient rituals provide an extremely rich resource. You remember, anything that lasts for 4,500 to 5,000 years must have something going for it. And so these texts, which were performed in the temples for thousands of years, for thousands of years, there's a certain body of energy so energetically, doing these rituals, reciting these words, you are putting yourself back as an individual into an ancient time. And it's like a, a plug into an electrical socket. You're connecting with a tremendously wonderful power source. And that's just our experience, not just mine, but members of our temples their experience, and why they come back month after month, year after year, because it provides a great boost, a great sense of rightness. And that's, that's why I think these rituals have caught on and make sense to so many people. Coming up after the break, we continue our conversation with Richard Reedy, author of Eternal Egypt, Ancient Rituals for the Modern World. We'll be discussing the inherent divinity within all of creation and how the ancient Egyptians saw that in the world around them, animal-headed deities, how to get started if you're feeling drawn to an Egyptian spiritual path, and more. 
So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Richard Reedy in just a couple of minutes. for the first time or just starting to study uh, various aspects of ancient Egyptian spirituality, there are things that may feel very foreign or confusing or are certainly very different in contrast to our modern way of thinking, even in terms of just the concept of, say, God. So could you just, in a kind of a, a general sense, characterize the the thought philosophy, the spirituality of the ancient Egyptians, and some of the particular things you found to be perhaps different than how we tend to think of things today, and some of those things that we may need to be open to considering or adjusting if someone was deciding that they wanted to try to pursue a comedic path. I think the ancient Egyptians, much like many modern-day pagans, saw this world and nature, not as empty of content, vacant, hollow, but rather as filled with content, filled with a special spiritual, some would say, including myself, divine energy, so that this planet is holy, it is sacred, it is not fallen, it is not corrupt. We don't need to be saved from anything. But because it's holy, it can serve as a vehicle for divinity. Now that's where we get into the question of the sacredness of animals, the sacredness of the landscape, the sacredness of nature, and ultimately the sacredness of each other. Our modern world is very impoverished in its materialist view that nature is empty of content, that it has no spiritual presence or meaning. The ancient Egyptians were quite in touch with nature, and they could see deity in nature, including animals. And so, you know, that can be uh, something that modern people may have a hard time understanding. How can a cow or a crocodile, or some other animal, an ibis, the bird. Uh, How can these animals show forth divinity? And if the ancient Egyptians are showing us a way to do that, that if we look at animal behavior, if we look at the strength of the lion, if we look at the power of the crocodile, if we look at the soaring beauty of the hawk, that there is something divine and magnificent there. So many of us live in big cities. So many of us have fairly restricted contact with either animals or with nature. And so it's a little more difficult for some of us to connect on that level. But it's well worth the effort. And the Egyptians certainly saw deity in these animals. There's no two ways about it. That, I think, is something that's a unique gift 
from ancient Egyptians. So I think one of the more challenging things for at least a modern Westerner to understand or to move beyond is that you know the ancient Egyptians and their approach to both their spiritual practice as well as simply their cosmology and their understanding of the world around them preceded any sort of monotheistic way of conceiving the universe. And even if someone is not brought up in or is not necessarily a follower of a particular monotheistic spiritual tradition today, there's still kind of this osmosis that we get from our overculture, this idea of God versus the more polytheistic way of being able to see things. So could you maybe expand a bit on what you have found to be the thought or the conception of deity and the gods from the ancient Egyptian way of seeing it. The ancient Egyptians saw individual gods, so they were they were certainly polytheists. They were not crypto-monotheists. They did see all creation, including the gods, coming from one and multiplying into the millions, into the millions of millions. And uh, there is the perception that this is good, that this is right and proper. The great richness of that one multiplying out, not being simply aspects or faces or masks of the one, but actually having a unique individual existence. This was a really important idea. Now, today, some in the pagan community look upon all goddesses as masks or aspects of a single goddess, or masks or aspects of one god. Ancient Egypt uh, did not do that. They were genuine, deep polytheists. And uh, I think that there is a richness in polytheism, just as in humanity. We come, perhaps, from just a few humans millions of years ago. But we have multiplied, and we are millions of millions. We are billions of billions. We're not all just one. We're not masks of that one. We're not aspects of that one. We are unique and individual. And it's my belief, my feeling, that the gods and goddesses are precisely the same. They are unique individuals and deserve to be approached that way. I think one of the most unique and probably one of the most recognizable or well-known aspects that many people, even if they're not familiar with ancient Egyptian spirituality or whatever, is the association of animals with deity, whether it's the animal-headed human form that many people would at least know they've seen. Could you maybe speak a bit to what that symbolism or the importance of that connection was between both the gods and animals, as well as even the way that the Egyptians would see the animal itself, such as the baboon itself, would be seen as the incarnation or the manifestation of Jehudi, of Thoth. Could you maybe speak a bit to that to help people understand a little bit more of what that might have meant to the ancient Egyptians and why it wasn't just a, a fanciful way of illustrating or symbolizing their gods? 
uh, it certainly wasn't a fanciful way. It was it was well thought out, and it was based. I think it was coming from the richness of Egyptian theology. It was a recognition that deity is in human beings, deity is in animals, and the combination of the two, whether we're showing Anubis, that is Anpu, with the head of the jackal or whether we're showing the great goddess Sekhmet with the head of the lion. These were very down-to-earth, material ways of representing the great powers of these deities. And so the animal itself manifested aspects of that deity. And so the Egyptians had the genius of combining the two. You find this in modern-day Hinduism also with animal forms of deity uh, with certain human aspects, whether it's hands or feet or whatever. But there's a certain intuition that the Hindus have, and today we Reconstructionists also. Uh, So it may be something that at first an individual may not be totally familiar with or even comfortable with, but my attitude toward this is give it time. Give it a chance. Try to understand it on a deeper level. That would be my advice. Something you had mentioned a couple of minutes ago was the concept of the one becoming millions, becoming millions of millions. And whether this is a modern interpretation of this or this is the way that people back then might have thought, we see a lot of times people who will say, oh, well, if my tradition has this particular god or goddess that exhibits this particular characteristics or qualities, then that is the same as this Egyptian god. So like the Greeks, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, for them, you know, Hermes was Jehudi, just by a different name for the Greeks. And I don't necessarily hold to that view, but I'm wondering if you have something that you might want to say to that. If you think that the same gods are seen by all people, they just see them with different names, or does the idea of the millions of millions lead you to think that actually those gods are distinctly different and separate, even though there may be very similar qualities or characteristics that you could say, well, yes, that's very similar too, but it's not the same as. There can be a tendency to syncretism, to uh, identify one goddess with the goddess of another spiritual tradition or one god. You know, the idea that, oh, the Greeks had Zeus, and the Egyptians had Amun, and so this is the same deity. I think that that leads to a rather impoverished view of deity. I truly believe in millions of millions. Just look out on a starry night if you're out in the country where there's no light obstacles preventing it, and look at the million way. Milky Way, and look at the millions and millions of stars out there, planets and galaxies, uh, solar systems. And if we know this is there in nature, why is it so hard to understand 
But the gods are millions of millions. So if someone expressed to you that they were in some way feeling called to the comedic path or, or to follow a comedic spiritual practice, what advice would you perhaps give them or what guidance would you perhaps, perhaps give them as a way to start down that path? Well, first of all, I would like to know how they came to be interested in ancient Egypt or in a comedic path. And if it was because they felt interested in and attracted to a particular goddess or god, then I would say that that is the way to pursue their interest, to find out more about that goddess or that god, and that that will naturally lead to an interest in exploring other aspects as I said much earlier, not everyone needs to go into a very academic approach to ancient theologies, but rather to follow their heart and to start building a relationship with that goddess or that god so that that, that deity is going to help you and guide you. And so you listen to the interior. This is not a religion of the book. And the religions of the book the Christian goes to the priest or minister to understand the words of the Bible. The Jewish person goes to the rabbi. The Muslim person goes to the imam. And it's the imam or the priest or minister or rabbi who tells you what the book means. No. The gods speak directly to us. They speak quietly to our heart. And so we're okay, and it's right to follow that intuition. People can guide you. I can, I can guide. I can help in an advisory capacity. So can other comedics. But always, ultimately, it's your own judgment and how you feel about it. And the gods will work with you. And I think sometimes people can get excited when they are discovering or being drawn to something new, and they may jump into the deep end rather than wading into the pool. And so if somebody picked up your book and thought, oh, I'm going to start doing a comedic path now, and here's some rituals, so I'm going to start doing those, they may feel overwhelmed because those rituals may seem long or involved or complex, or there may be some aspects within them, whether it's the language or things that are referred to, that may be very foreign or confusing because there's just no previous knowledge of them. And part of the advice, even if they wanted to pick up your book to start with, may be to focus on that deity that has perhaps called them, if that's how they're being called to the path. But instead of saying, well, now let me do this whole ritual, they might just look through it and say, let me find the, a, a hymn or a, a prayer or a, uh, something that is for that particular deity that I can start to say that ultimately will actually reveal more of that deity to them because so inherent in those, in the ancient Egyptian way of writing things with the epithets and uh, referring so much to the qualities of a particular deity and that kind of thing or roles just reading that can give you so much insight and help to expand your understanding of that deity. And so I think that it's important also for people that are feeling drawn to that or just starting, that it's okay to start with baby steps 
and a baby step doesn't mean do a whole ritual that may take you two hours and now you're feeling overwhelmed or confused and so you start to feel very dissuaded from trying to continue doing it versus go in and find some portion of it that you can utilize to start expanding your understanding and connection. And then from there, you may build a practice that starts to do more complex or involved ritual or not, but simply to not let yourself overwhelm yourself from the very beginning because looking at something may feel very big or confusing. And that's where I think sometimes allowing yourself to do some education work is important because you start to say, I don't understand what this is, and rather than tossing it aside because you don't understand it, say, I'm going to try to find out what this might mean or what this might be by looking up, say, the academic uh, description or explanation of what that might have been or where that might have come from. Well, that's why in my book, I try to give a lot of explanation and commentary, and I also have hundreds and hundreds of end notes so that people can see precisely where I got a ritual item or a particular utterance or recitation or ritual action so that they can go to the academic sources. I'm not making something up. I'm not putting out there my own little spiritual take on something. I'm genuinely trying to provide guidance and access to those academic sources and put it in a popular form. And um, people can always contact me with questions. I also like to recommend a book called Temple of the Cosmos by Jeremy Nadler, N-A-Y-D-L-E-R. Jeremy Nadler is a Brit who has written a very comprehensive book on ancient Egyptian spirituality. That's what Temple of the Cosmos is. Uh, So that there you have the broad sweep of Egyptian theology. And it will provide very useful, very interesting information about the ancient Egyptian view of creation and of the gods and of uh, mythology. So that's a good place, in addition to my book, Eternal Egypt, to start reading Jeremy Nadler. Other books I certainly could recommend, but I'd like to do that on an individual basis, depending upon person's interests and person's uh, time availability. And so they certainly, are, you know, I hope will contact me at my email. Again, I'll give it. It's rjreedy at hotmail.com. So I hope people will feel free to contact me. And I also realize people may have multiple spiritual practices. They may be members of another spiritual tradition, and they like certain things about Egyptian spirituality. That's all good. It isn't It isn't uh, like uh, some other monotheist religions where you've got to take their religion, and that's it, and don't mess with any other religion. You know, Not at all. People are called to different aspects of different paths. And I also think you would encourage people, if they did pick up your book as a starting point, to be willing to and are free to uh, adapt 
the rituals in some way to perhaps take portions to condense it down to a more manageable ritual for them to do? There is, in fact, in the... Uh in my book, there is a very small five-minute ritual. That particular ritual can, I realize people are very busy uh, with jobs, with children, with other activities, and so may have uh, very limited time to do uh, any ritual at all. But I think it's important to do something every day. It can be very brief, just a couple of minutes. Uh, it doesn't have to involve a lot uh, you can, if you have a statue of a deity, or if you have a picture of the deity, that can be the focus point for your own personal altar. You might go there and offer a little tea candle. You might offer bread or water or some fruit or some other food. You can either use the very brief ritual in my book or just speak to the deity in your own words. And just as important as speaking to the deity is also being willing to be still and to listen because the deity will speak back, but we have to be quiet enough to actually allow that and to hear it. Yes, once a person starts down this path, they may be very surprised at how the deity responds and speaks to them in the quiet of their mind, and good things will happen. That, I promise, good things will happen. So thank you very much, Richard, for having joined us today. I've no doubt that people listening have found what you had to share with them both interesting and intriguing, as well as probably piqued the curiosity of a lot of people to want to pursue it further. And I would certainly encourage them, if that is the case, to pick up your book to contact you directly if they have some particular questions. And hopefully we can have you back in the future to continue expanding on this and perhaps find out some more information on some specific areas or topics. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. And I hope, as you, as you said, I invite people to contact me. I'm happy to try to answer any questions that you might have. You can contact Richard Reedy by emailing him at rjreedy, that's R-J-R-E-I-D as in David, Y, at hotmail.com. You can also contact him or find out more about him at facebook.com slash eternalegypt. And you can find his book, Eternal Egypt, Ancient Rituals for the Modern World, at online retailers such as Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Richard Reedy, and stay tuned. We'll have our final segment with live call-in on-air readings where you can find out what Egyptian god or goddess may have a message for you to give you guidance, to respond to a question you may have. So I encourage you to Skype in or call in. The phone number is 646-716-5510. We'll be right back right after this.
You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with Heisey. Hello, fellow space cadets. This is Tino with another installment of Flying Punk Rock Unicorn Astrology. July is shaping up to be a fairly interesting month. Not only did love win, but we also have to keep in mind that the struggles ahead are certainly far from over. To start, a word of advice, my sweet Emmett. Mourn the losses, because they are many, but celebrate the victories, because they are few. True words spoken by Debbie Novotny uh, from Queer as Folk. So the above quote truly does sum up our moment. The recent SCOTUS decision in the U.S. to legalize same-sex marriage for the entire nation following on the heels of Ireland's decision to do the same by an historic public referendum, the arc of the universe bends towards justice and fairness. That said, the radical departure is not over. There is still much work to be done to move towards the dream of a truly just and sustainable civilization, but the most recent advances are certainly encouraging. There will, of course, be the inevitable backlash, but it seems that ultimately all the major institutions and arcs of our social direction are moving towards a world that is freer, happier, and more peaceful. There is still the haunting possibility of blowback and black swan events, but that is par for the course, and those massive events teach us the struggle is not over, and that resilience in the face of hard edges is what gives us humans our indomitable spirit starting actually on July 13th and what we see in the sky uh, on July 13th is Mercury will trine Neptune which will carry themes of communicating all the dreams of the future. Neptune is taking on a much more science fiction type cast. So for those of us who are writers of highly speculative fiction, including all that falls under the purview of science fiction, this is a good time to scribble those ciphers on the page, whether physical or digital. On a collective level, a time to communicate exactly exactly what future humanity is attempting to build for itself. The wildest conceptions are given prominence under these auspices. Now the caveat. It is easy to get so lost in visions and dreams and being a channel for radical departures that it leads to navel-gazing and no practical action to manifest these visions. Enjoy the receptivity to higher octaves, but do remember that in order for something to become reality and not just a dream, it needs to be acted on. July 14th, the very next day, Venus will square Saturn, and this I call the backlash. In a famous role reversal, Saturn plays the more progressive role, 
Saturn sheds his sometimes repressive role in and instead makes the cause for, sh- for social justice that much more real. And with him in retrograde, we find ourselves collectively re-examining the social matrix. The recent victories is a case in point. Venus takes on a double face being in the sign of Leo, one of her more playful and creative aspects, and it is also a very royal sign which carries with it a double edge. Venus in Leo signals the victory that the LGBTQ population in the U.S. has recently experienced with the historic SCOTUS ruling, but there are those who would wish to repeal the decision and use ancient prejudices as their justification for doing so. They will moan about how they are being persecuted and discriminated against for not being able to hold the power they once had, cloaking it in appeals to violations of their rights to religious freedom. A feature of democracy is that the rights of minorities are protected as a default setting. This is in essence what this square means. Saturn is making a new balanced and fair reality possible. The tension between Saturn attempting to mature and materialize the social justice vision and its shadow side which attempts to restrict the forward momentum contrasting with the dancing in the streets in celebration of the unique Venus and Leo idea that love is love and that there is a passion in this historic decision and that all manifestations of love are worthy, valid, and carry the majesty of this most intimate of human experiences. Again, the trick is to realize that the struggle is not over. But the victory is worth celebrating as it sets a new precedent for the next social justice visions going forward and the expansion of issues to cast a wider net and improve the lives of vastly more than marriage equality can. July 15th, we will see a new moon in Gemini. July's dark moon falls in the sign of duality and the twins. If the experience is one of being between the worlds, this is why. The sky is double-timing it in liminal space, with one twin in the underworld and the other walking the more terrestrial one. We're all familiar with. A good time to have many irons in the fire, with the caveat being that attentive attention to details will help to avoid losing the trail of any one thing. July 16th, Mars will oppose Pluto, and this can often feel like the nuclear option. This is a tense aspect in that the individual will and the collective will are opposing one another. It symbolically looks like the current struggles between those who would exonerate individual liberties and freedoms and a corporate overclass hell-bent on maintaining its illegitimate hegemony on an increasingly rebellious populace uninterested in being yoked in these impossible scenarios. An example of this is the leaking of secret information surrounding the the TPP partnership, otherwise known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The same day, we will see Mercury conjunct Mars, and it may feel like a protest culture. Touching off the Pluto opposition and in the verbose sign of Gemini, the conditions around secret deals and other high-level decisions being made without public knowledge or consent could spark renewed interest in protest movements and lead to more resistance and increasing social unrest. With the objective in mind that decisions being made that affect the public so broadly and profoundly will no longer be made without consent from the public. 
July 22nd, Mercury will trine Saturn. We call this the news cycle. A day when the messages of fairness carry weight and gravitas and will have powerful impacts when communicated to the masses. A good day to discuss any issues of fairness and representation in life. Three days later, on July 25th, Mars will square Uranus, and it could often feel like a battle of wills. Metaphorical of our times in that the populace is demanding a new course of action and the establishment is digging in its heels and holding the rest of us hostage to an economic model which is leading us to system failure. It is better that the rest of us should keep demanding a radical departure as those in charge are following a path guided more by psychopathic delusion than reason and sustainability. The auspices of this transit give a feeling of my way or the highway, and at this critical juncture, the need to resist hegemonic power with a kind of enlightened obstinacy is more cogent than ever. July 31st, we will experience a full moon in Capricorn, which I call Lucifer's Temptation. Capricorn is associated with the Devil card in the Tarot deck of Medici fame. It has less to do with Christian iconography and a great deal more to do with the aspects we lust after that can bind us. Prominence is brought to this area of life when the moon lands in Capricorn. What consumes you in the fires of desire? Do your lusts entrap you or set you free? July in a nutshell, dear star travelers, is packed and celebratory. Let's all ride the arc of victory as long as we can until the next one comes. If you would like to find out more, be sure to read my blog at flyingpunkrockunicorn.com. That's flyingpunkrockunicorn.com. I also do readings as well. I do natal chart readings in the 13 signs sidereal tradition of astrology. You can reach me on Facebook at Prometheus the Astrologer. Stay golden, lovely.
Thank you for joining us. Revolution with host Ticey Lutmers, brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with Ticey. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lisney. Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. Oh,